Welcome back to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, your host at the pub this evening. Tonight's conversation will focus on developing a healthy digestive tract, and it takes a deeper look into our Real Science Lecture Series talk from Dr. Brian Aldridge from the University of Illinois. Brian, welcome to the Real Science Exchange. To get us started, tell us uh, a bit about what's in your glass first, and then as a veterinarian who's worked with animals uh, around the world, what do you see as the biggest digestive health issues facing the livestock producers today? Well, good, uh, good afternoon. Scott, good to be here as well. Um, I'm at, it's sort of tea time for me, so uh, I'm a tea drinker. So the pubs now have diversified, right? So they're, they're social meeting places as well as um, drinking places as well. So uh, a cup of tea is the answer to all life's problems over in the UK. So I'm drinking a cup of tea. Since we're solving any, problems. Any, any milk in the tea? tea? Milk, of course, milk and sugar. Yeah, absolutely. And you have, to, you have to make it on the boil. It has to be boiling when you make the tea. That's the trick. Excellent. Uh, I want, to, I want America to know if that's the trick. You have to boiling water. Good on, the, the biggest problem, yeah, the biggest problem I see um, probably, Scott, is, is this idea that we think when we see intestinal problems, we think of bugs rather than thinking about the animals themselves. So we, we're, we're a little bit more, uh, we're pathogen centric rather than host centric. So we worry about disease being <clears throat> related to um, something has invaded my farm or something has invaded my herd or this particular individual. This individual has caught a disease. Whereas really in the real world, that's not, that's not actually true. So I think I would love, I think that's sort of challenging us. If we only think of poor health in terms of pathogens, then we miss the big picture. I think pathogens very often are the, are the, the manifestation of poor health rather than the cause of poor health. Yeah, thank you for that. Very interesting. Uh, this is going to be a lively uh, conversation tonight since we've also invited another veterinarian to join us here at the pub. Dr. Ken Sanderson is currently the Senior Director of Business Development at Balchem. Ken earned his DVM from the Ontario Veterinary College in Guelph, Ontario. Ken, I believe you have the distinction of being the first Canadian to join us here at the exchange. So with that in mind, uh, is that a Canadian beverage in your glass there tonight? Well, Scott, I'm glad you asked. Thanks for inviting me tonight. I don't know if you guys can see this, but this is the true Canadian beverage, Molson Canadian. Molson. So no, no Canadian would be complete without one of those in his hand. That's awesome. I, I had a Canadian neighbor one time, Ken, and he had a dog named Molson. So I, yeah, Good right name. at home with that. Yeah. Uh, Ken, if you wouldn't mind, um, please share something a little bit personal about yourself that gives uh, the listeners a glimpse of the man behind the degrees. Well, Scott, um, I, I wouldn't know where to start, but I guess when I do have a few minutes of off time, I uh, enjoy piloting my own aircraft. And so for the last almost four decades, I've been a private pilot and flown a variety of different aircraft, and I can never quite get enough time to go flying. Well, Ken, I've known you 10 or 11 years, and I didn't even know that. So that, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Um, and always, we have Dr. Clay Zimmerman joining us here tonight at the exchange. And I'm going to assume he's still got the uh, hard cider with him. Yes, there you go. Yep. Awesome. Cheers, Scott. <laughs> Not letting us down, Clay. <laughs> You're a good man. So, so right. Scott, what are you drinking tonight? Well, 
I'm glad you asked, actually. Uh, tonight, I've got a redemption rye. Um, I'm not typically a rye drinker, but I have found that I typically like bur bourbons with a high rye bill. And so I thought, oh, what the heck? I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a try, and uh, it's actually pretty good. I you know for for a, a undiscerning palate like mine, it tastes a whole lot like bourbon. So uh, <laughs> I'm fine with that. So cheers to everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight here at the pub. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, Brian, before we get started, um, I'd like to congratulate you on taking a very complex topic during the webinar and making it very easy, you know, using, you've got some very unique concepts, uh, unique ways for us to mentally uh, um, visualize the immune system, and, and you use some pretty dynamic graphics in your, your uh, presentation, which I really, really uh, enjoyed. And so, you know, I would invite our audience, if you've not seen the webinar yet, um, look it up at balchemnh.com slash real science, and then look it up, and, and you can watch it right from there. You can even download the, the presentation. And even if you have seen it, I would encourage you to go back and watch it again, which I've done on a couple occasions. So it's just very enlightening, takes a very complex uh, issue and makes it easy to understand. So with that, Brian, back in January, you introduced the idea of the healthy phenotype and talked about a resistant phenotype. Could you explain that again? Yeah, I, I think probably the easiest way to think about it um... Again, Scott, when we think about disease, we think about um, the individuals that succumb to a particular challenge. So let's say we have a pathogen coming in. So it's easy to think about in, in, in terms of the infectious disease. Um, if, we, if there were 20 of us sitting in a room and influenza virus came into that room, right? One of the individuals was shedding large amounts of influenza virus. Um, as we sat around there, you would see um, people might call the manifestations of that bug um, uh, inhabiting those people, infecting those individuals uh, as, as flu, right? We often call the, the manifestations by the name of the bug, which is interesting. But actually, when you look within that population, um, different people would respond really differently. So you might have uh, two or three individuals or, or that would um, end up in bed, probably the men within that room, right? We get man flu, we'd be, we'd have fever, we'd be sweating, we'd be in bed for a few days. Um, there'd be another number of people, maybe five or six that would get, you know, um, uh, runny nose and a cough and sneeze for a few days, but then be fine. But probably 70% of them on that same exposure, everyone's been exposed to the same bug, the same amount of bug, but they'd be fine. So, so it's really to think about influenza, even influenza itself, there's different manifestations of it. It's not simply bug, host, here are the, here's the clinical manifestation. Within, within that group, there's all these different manifestations of it. And some, some individuals would not even bat an eyelid, right? They, they wouldn't even know they've been exposed. So that happens to most of us most days is we're exposed to, to potentially pathogen, pathogenic organisms, and we're fine. And that's the healthy phenotype, right? You want your animals to be um, of the, the stature and status where they can be exposed to um, uh, a challenge and a health challenge. And our health challenge doesn't, doesn't just come in the form of pathogens. It comes in the form of weather and the form of 
um, nutritional changes, a whole transport, right? There's a whole set of health challenges that uh, an animal will face. Why does some do really well in the face of that and some do poorly? So I would call that the, the, the healthy phenotype is the animal that is either robust in the face of a challenge, resilient in the face of a challenge, or when a challenge occurs, they adapt so that there's not even a hitch in their step, right? They, they, they don't lose any weight or stop their weight gain. They don't drop in milk production. So, uh, and there's no, there's no observable clinical signs of it. So to me, that's the healthy phenotype. And in every population, Scott, we're gonna have animals across that whole spectrum. So I think it's really important for us to recognize that, you know, our, our herds have all of individuals that are healthy, that are diseased and are somewhere in between as well. So we have to manage all of those individuals. We're never gonna have a perfect herd, right? Or a perfect flock or a perfect population. So now we're on, while we're on the subject of phenotype, I recall that you were talking about phenotype is genetics times uh, the environment times time, I believe. And forgive me if I've gotten that wrong. Could you kind of maybe expound yeah. on that just a bit? Yeah, and I, th I think that's kind of the classic formula that people learn in genetics, right? That you, you certainly have, um, you have genetics, you, you, you can have two particular um, um, individuals that have exactly the same genetics. Um, as we, if they get put into different environments, if they get fed differently, that's, that's an environment. Uh, effect, then they will grow, they will look differently or they will grow differently within that plants, right? Good gardeners can take, you can have two plants, you can give me a plant, right? And let's, I, let's say, uh, you know, Ken might be a really good gardener. Give Ken, Ken a, you're a good gardener, Ken? You're a good gardener? Pretty good? Not even remotely. <laughs> Clay, maybe one of us is a good gardener here, right? My, my wife is the gardener. She does. Is it? She does the gardener. Okay. Let's say we get a plant. I keep, or let's say we give one to Ken and one to his wife, the same plant, the same genetics. How they do is determined to what, what takes, what the environment that we put in it. So I don't just mean environment by temperature and, and moisture and stuff, but what Ken does and what Ken, Ken's wife do to that plant is their environment and they will develop differently. So that's genetics times environment. And, and, and T is easy, right? Because over time, a calf turns into a cow, right? Uh, and a young cow and, and a heifer and an older cow or a, a piglet turns into a pig. So T changes our phenotype. As we're all, uh, we're all strapping uh, middle-aged, I don't know what age we'd put us in, but Right. We look, we look different than we did when we were 21. Right. So time has had its um, and environment has had its toll uh, on each of us. Right. In some way. And that can be good and that can be uh, damaging as well, I think. So um, and what's interesting, I think, um, in addition to that, Scott, is that the environment, where do we encompass? Where do we encounter the environment to a greatest degree as animals? It's at their mucosal surfaces. So the direct, right, us, everything is made in us to protect our, us against the environment, our skin. Now we see the environment, we taste it, we hear it, but your intestinal tract is in direct um, communication with the environment. Your respiratory tract is in direct communication with the environment. So where our phenotype, our health phenotype gets programmed is at our mucosal surfaces. What we feed is determining actually our ultimate phenotype. Right. So the G times E is occurring at 
the parts in our body which have the greatest surface area. What do they say? Like our lung fields, I think a lung field for, for a human our size would be something like a football, two, two or three tennis courts in size. So for a cow, it might be like a football field or something like that. That's a massive intimate encounter between the animal and the depths of the animal with its environment, microbiologically, chemically, um, um, toxically, uh, it encounters the environment in different ways. So G times E times T for our animals occurs largely at the respiratory and the GI in the GI tract. Mm. How, how, how does stocking density impact the, uh, the resistant phenotype? Yeah, I, I think there'd, there'd be there'd be two or three ways, um, and, and I think that the challenges um, to the phenotype and to the healthy phenotype play they would be they'd probably be in sort of four four big areas for me, and stocking density would probably affect all of those things. So uh, microbiologically, and we're getting to know we understand the microbiome and its role in programming health and development, we're understanding that rapidly escalate, it's a rapidly escalating area of knowledge for all of us to understand that microbiome. Um, so um, the microbiome in, is involved in that programming um, and that development, stocking density, you would have individuals in a different stocking density would have a different microbial challenge that they would have. The microbes in the aerosol would be very different when you have high stocking densities. Uh, particular and in the bedding as well. So you, stocking density would affect uh, microbial challenges. Metabolically, um, the that programming is taking place as well. There's more competition for food probably. It, it, it's harder to manage a group of a hundred than it is a group of three, right? So uh, intensification, we can do intensification, but it needs really careful management, doesn't it? So therefore, you you kind of have metabolic challenges that are taking place. So there's microbial challenges. There's metabolic challenges and there's mental challenges. And that seems strange to, to when we talk about animals, but it's their neuroendocrinological. So there's different hierarchies. Um, there's some bullying that takes place. There's tail biting in pigs that occurs with stocking density, um, more competition at bunk space, less lying and rest, uh, maybe less play time. So for our young animals, there's mental neuroendocrine might be a more scientific way um to say those things as well so they're kind of there are these multiple challenges that take place um uh, and, then, and then mucosal challenges i always think of mucosal challenges so poor air quality more toxins in the air um, and therefore more urea more sulf more um, hydrogen sulfide and so that's potentially more damaged mucosa so in stocking density all of those things change and therefore um, that is a big management factor that's affecting our, uh, we've got to get that right. All of those four aspects, I think. Do you think, Brian, there's um, any hierarchy to those challenges you mentioned? You know, in the human literature, I think you and I might have even talked about this at one of our previous encounters, but there was a, uh, a Russian author in the late 70s who wrote about uh, salutogenesis, and he was a uh, a medical sociologist and he talked a lot about stressors and he talked about this concept you put in the webinar the continuum of health and um, most of his work was focused on stressors more psychological and how they yeah. impacted the health 
And in our world in animal agriculture, although we are certainly paying more attention than we were when I first went through veterinary school to these issues, we don't seem to have a very effective way to scale these, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, psychological stressors on yeah. the animals and how much impact they really have on tipping these animals over the edge uh, into a layer of dysfunction that we classically call disease. Yeah. So how would you rank those, I'll call them neural stressors? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a great, I think that's a great uh, example. I know um, in the feedlot world, world uh, Ken, if you've looked at Tom Nofsinger's work, but uh, um, Tom uh, is a DVM and, and goes to feedlots and trains um, the stewards at a particular feedlot, right? The cowboys and the, um, um, the, the animal caretakers to, to develop relationships with these animals, a trust with these relationships. So one of the, the, the word he uses more than anything is confidence, that the animals are confident in their, their handlers. So this kind of prey predator relationship and um, so here you have these group of calves getting off at a feedlot. They've, they've come from a small group. Now they're in a big group. They've been transported. They arrive at their feedlot. So he actually um, helps them acclimate to their new environment. He teaches them where the feed is, and which is, this is, these are kindergartners, right? In some way, teaches them where the feed is, teaches them where to lie down. Cause you, and he's got these great videos of these animals running around and, and they're sort of, where am I kind of thing? And we just leave them there. So what he does is he, he, he spends time with them as, an, as a, a person, right? They go, they're looking for leadership and they're looking for guidance. They're looking for something to be confident in. And you are the people, the manager, the handlers, the cowboys are the, are the easiest, um, the tr most trainable um, leader for them otherwise they're going to look for a leader in their own group right which might be a, a high high stress calf or something like that they're not going to pick the calm calf they're going to pick the one that's oh come run over here with me or run over there so he actually trains them to to acclimate he acclimates them to their new environment so what he does he manages change and we find that we i think how we manage change tells us how good a manager we are right uh, in some way that's true with students students at a university the high stress times are when they first come in as freshmen around exam time uh, um, when they're changing groups right so, so change is really important and the neuroendocrine effects as you say if we can manage change i think we've gone a long way to ensuring health I always uh, feel that one of our challenges, and maybe again, my classical veterinary education in my way here in my thinking, but you know, we're always looking for the KPI. So what can we measure or feel like index um, at, on how we're doing in these areas of management and that particular area of acclimating or reducing those stresses seems difficult to measure you can measure maybe more the failure yeah because it manifests in the ultimate negative outcome of disease but but being more preemptive than that any idea how we should be thinking about those kpis and 
Yeah, and 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 I think I think we'd know. I think we'd all say that um, the farms that we've been involved in, the production systems that we've all been involved in, that we've seen. Um, what's the secret source for the best managers? It's the best people that you have there, right? So we, we always joke about diseases having names and their name is Bill and Fred and right? it's, it's the people that cause the negative outcomes. But I think that's true too, that it's people that cause the positive outcomes as well. And, um, and, and, and Tom, Tom would say, which I think is really useful, if confidence is a measure of, of of this area of psychological, mental well-being, which again, it's a bit hard to talk about in animals, like to actually say it, but behavior is a manifestation of physiology, isn't it, right? So what's going on inside of us is expressed in behavior. And we see that in our children, but how much more in animals? So so, so that, that change in the group from uh, to behaviors which um, are in the parasympathetic world and not the sympathetic world. So sympathetic, we think of fight or flight. Parasympathetic, we think of as resting, playing. Um, and he talks about animals volunteering to do something. So his measure, which is a, a, a holistic measure, a global measure, but he's saying it reflects all kinds of things. It reflects uh, mucosal health and neuroendocrine health and um, a good immune system, right? So you know en endocrinologically they're stable. He would say when they volunteer to do things, they're looking for leadership because they're herd animals. Usually, we, we normally have group animals. Um, so a group of sheep that's running around compared to a group that's lying down. And so some of the KPIs, I think neuroendocrinologically, a, a confidence and their, their, their willingness to volunteer. So, so he leads animals from in front and not from behind. More like a shepherd than a sheepdog kind of thing. So it's really, so, so can you get, can, can you lead animals to, so they'll go where you want them to. And I, th I, think, I think you could say like um, uh, noise levels in a building. I mean, I think we would say I love going into those cow barns where it's really quiet. Because what's that mean? They're resting. They're not running around. They're not looking for food. They're, again, that's different at different times of the day. But when you go into a quiet pig barn or anything, a quiet unit, you go, there's something good about here. The workers aren't clashing and clanging around. The animals are resting and sleeping. So I, and, and people are looking at noise monitors, actually, sound monitors as a measure of well-being, which I think is a really interesting, again, we're in that psychological world, right? We're not looking at, you know, um, uh, health in other ways, but neuroendocrinologically, it's a huge influence on our animals. So sound, I, I think the noise that's in a, in a particular unit uh, uh, in uh, any one time. I, I know I go into some dairies, right? And you'd, you go into some and some of the cows are being milked and it's quiet as anything. And there's others, depending on the worker, and they're kicking and it's clanky and animals are shifting a, a noisy parlor compared to a quiet parlor with just the sound of the milking machine and the animals, you know, mooing. That's a lovely sound, but we know that that's actually a global measure, I think. So things like that would be quite, instead of taking blood samples or what, what's the holistic manifestation of that whole pen or that whole unit is what I was thinking, Ken. I don't, what do you guys think? I mean, you guys have seen lots of animals at different times. Would that be, I think we'd, we'd love to see a calm, quiet group of animals. We think they're well and well looked after. Wouldn't you? That's kind of the thing I think. Is that what you guys think? How does that work for you? 
It's one thing that I was kind of reminded of. I met a gentleman uh, a couple years ago. His name's David Hunt, and he he was involved in uh, developing this fa uh, facial recognition uh, system for cattle. And uh, <clears throat> we were in the UK at the time, and we we had gone to uh, to a farm to see how this was working. And uh, he had this theory about um, cattle being being uh, you know, evolutionary, uh, being able to identify, uh, predators and they see us with our eyes in front as predators. And he said yeah. that when we walked through that barn, it took them two days to get back to their normal rhythms as measured by this, uh, facial recognition, uh, software. And I just, I'm just, uh, wondering, we really got to uh, have a better understanding of animal psychology and behavior and, uh, how that, how we might be able to utilize that to, you know, reduce, uh, uh, health problems. Just, just kind of curious. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I think, you know, the, the world of sensors is a big project going on at Illinois with different sensors and, and looking at, you have some of these big units now, which there's an economy of scale, but sometimes you, you might have our animals just looked at once a day right in a, in a big pig barn and maybe that group was looked at and the individual wasn't looked at so so that that can be a sort of time inventory thing and a, um, a skill base right what's the you know for skilled maybe some of our experienced farmers and producers are going out and so that we have less skilled labor that have the skills to to evaluate behavior as well let you say so i i think it's really interesting thinking about video um, sound monitoring, not to replace our caretakers, but actually to inform them and direct them to the right place. Hey, something's going on over here. The, the, the indicators of health and failure of health occur several days before when we pick it up. So what are the measures of this kind of pre-disease state? Um, and, and that's true for me. When, when I feel sick, it, it, don't wait for the day when I have to stay in bed. It's two days before when I'm not feeling quite right, isn't it? So we want to pick our animals up the two days before it's manifest in its fullest form, I think. So So that idea of different sensors, I think, I think videos are really interesting. And they could do 24-hour collections. Um, and, and, and the problem at the moment is, is the massive data that comes out of that, I think, Scott, is, is, is handling that massive amount of data. But we've got AI technologies to assess it because some of it needs to be processed at the animal. Can't go out to the office and back again, right? I mean, you just you have all these cameras everywhere. So, so it needs to be, you know, in, more instantaneous. So I think, I think there's a lot of technology to be developed, but we have to understand the behavior so that we can make the right interpretations, make intelligent observations on it. It seems it seems always a challenge to try and measure what hasn't happened, right? So in essence, this is what we're focused on in this uh, approach to the pre-disease state and finding the right way to understand and preempt the progression is the issue. And and we've obviously in the veterinary world we've relied on far more name the drug name the bug approach which is so far down the pathology path that usually the damage has created economic implications that are difficult to reverse but in our world in terms of the feed additive side we're always looking for 
bioactive substances, things to support this preemptive state, if you like, maintaining yeah. homeostasis. But, but my question to you would be, you know, one of our challenges is, is actually designing the right uh, protocols to look at bioactives so that we haven't disturbed so much of the system of the animal that we've got this ripple effect going on, but rather a more constrained element of disruption that the bioactive might actually be positively supporting so that it didn't happen. And, uh, and I think we're always challenged with finding the right models. So challenge models being the classic ones, but they're so disruptive in yeah. terms of the systems. They don't just involve what you're trying to support. They involve many others. Any ideas how we should be looking forward to evaluating supportive, I'll call it nutrient inputs like this to um, evaluate how we're supporting the homeostatic state of health? I think when you look, if these mucosal sites are really important, which I think we are in sort of this programming idea, this idea that the, the place where the animal encounters the environment, and we talked about the, the social aspect, that psychology, right? That's an external thing. That's eyes and ears. And so we, we sort of setting that side apart. These mucosal sites are the site because of their large surface area, because of their important and, and their large surface area because of what they've got to do. The lungs have to absorb oxygen, right? So that has to be a large surface area. The gut has to absorb nutrients. So it's a large surface area. But that means huge amount of exposure to microbes and toxins. And, and so I think if you if you break it down to this, those elements at those sites, and I would I'd be thinking about how can those elements, the nutrient additives, affect the microbiome, affect the, the microbes at those sites, affect the um, epithelium at those sites. So we think of the epithelium as as a barrier, certainly, right? And it's got mucus on the top, and there's different elements to that. Its barrier function. But they're very metabolically, they're very active. They're, all, they're part of the immune system, the epithelial cells themselves. They're really a remarkable population and they can regenerate really quickly. So I think about these nutrients. What are they doing to the microbes? What are they doing to the epithelial wall as its barrier function, but also the physiological things that it does? And then thirdly, um, what's it doing to the status of the the workers at that place right the immune system I, I don't want to call them just defenders but this idea that the immune system is actually a homeostatic system it's it's also fixing holes in the road right it's not just responding to pathogens it's the end result of an immune response is healing not getting rid of the bug right so if we scrape our knee we need the immune system to rebuild the knee right so so if we have a chemical challenge to the intestine, the immune system is who's going to respond and fix that to some degree, right? So, so I, I, think, um, I, I think with all of our systems, understanding that mucosal system, microbiome, epithelium, and the, the, um, the work as the immune system at that state and how they interact is going to be really important. And I, and I think you're in a great place because 
as I said earlier, our knowledge of the mucosal site has exploded. For many years, we've thought about the immune system um, in terms of what's in the bloodstream. So we give a vaccine and then we measure the bloodstream response. I think over the last few years, we're realizing, no, we need to put vaccines at the, the cell surface. We need, we need the, the pathogen specific response at the cell surface, at the mucosal surfaces. So I think we're having an explosion of understanding of that. It's a new world. It's like the undersea world. What is taking place at the mucosa? But it's hard to study too, because, right, you've got room, I mean, particularly in ruminants, to get to a lot of those mucosal surfaces, there's the rumen, and the rumen's fantastic. And I think we probably understand the rumen almost better than some of the other bits, because we can't get to the other bits to, to study them very well. But I know there's people who are now looking at, um, you know, um, pills with that can sample different environments along the way and actually can, um, can you know, so tracking kind of the, um, the, the, uh, the smart pill, if that makes sense. So cameras, sensors, I can take microbes from the abomasum and from the duodenum as it moves down and I can track, I know where it is because of the pH. So I think, I think we're in this, because of the microbiome, the massive explosion in, in sequencing technologies in the microbiome, I think over the next five or 10 years, our understanding of the mucosal world will be like the first submarines uh, in some way. So I think you guys have probably have tools uh, and some, but we don't know exactly how they work. I mean, I think there's probably a, right? There's some people that have, I, I, we know our, we give our product and it has a good effect, but we have no idea how it works. Don't you know, you've heard that probably in the, in the, the nutrition world. So and I think that's true. You go, we don't know the mechanism by which it works, but we can't refine them, Ken, till we do know how it works, right? Till we've unraveled those mechanisms. So uh, uh, we do that for treatments, right? I give them this and hey, they look, they look better. And uh, um, so I, th I think understanding the mechanisms of those three things, epithelium, microbiome, and um, um, the, the immune response at those sites is gonna be really important. There's a lady actually, um, who I'm working with a, a, a really smart uh, scientist up at so University of British Columbia. So she has developed technology for looking at um, a breath prints. So what we exhale and what does that tell us about um, the, not just the bugs that are there, but the health uh, of that particular site as well. So imagine that, that you could take an inhaled sample and she, she's done it particularly in human, in primate uh, respiratory disease. So she can detect the changes related to tuberculosis, for instance. Um, and, and again, uh, coronavirus, I know that uh, there's a group in, in Europe who've just um, used dogs to positively detect coronavirus, right? So they're sniffing, sniffing dogs. That's amazing. Like, what are they detecting, right? There must be th these volatile organic compounds that can be picked up by a dog with olfaction and the dog can say it's this or not this. So wouldn't that be great technologies if we can, if we can um, weaponize that or we can instrument that so that we can, we can look at something coming out of the animal and tell something about the microbiome, something about the epithelium and something about the immune response at that site. Because there has to be a signal that comes from that, right? So. Um... Yeah, no, it's a very intriguing area. Yeah. She called hers breath prints. Hers is called breath prints. What's this individual's breath print? And I think that's a good, you know, what's this cow's breath print? No, now again, there's a lot of technology before we can 
again, instrument that practically for, are we going to go around to every cow and put a mask on it, right? I mean, but, but, but the engineers are pretty clever at coming up with quick solutions for sampling things, aren't they? So, but if we know that that's what we need, I think the engineers could come up with how do we, uh, maybe it's in a pen, maybe it's, maybe it's the breath print over a, a group of animals that has is an early indicator that there's inflammation there and again this this host centric response as you mentioned scott not just the pathogen and, and i, I want to detect the pathogen but actually the pathogen might be there i want to know how the animals are responding to the challenge that they're faced whether it's cold or poor nutrition or, or hot you know and something is wrong the cow breathalyzer tests that's <laughs> a great that's a good example right so <laughs> that's very interesting so so from a dietary standpoint what what can we do to support uh this resistant phenotype then yeah i think um i think uh, if i was you <laughs> i would be working on change and and how do we how do i help an animal get through those really turbulent time we know that weaning is really difficult we know that transport we know the management stress points right yeah so how do we and, and, and until we change the system those stress points are going to be there's other drivers by which those management systems have to play out right and uh, um you know until we you know animals are going to be transported because our our grass is over here and our feedlots are there, right? So, so I think if you can if if you can find products that can help in that change period, then I think that so understanding what's happening at mucosal level during change, I think would be great. And and how can I um, make that smoother? It's still change, but instead of a stormy water, it's a calm water or a relatively calm water. Um, because there's going to be some animals who thrive, who can still get through that by themselves. I mean, who are the losses in? I, I think that's an interesting question, right, Clay? And there was some work looking at a group of pigs. Um, Jim Lowe here did it. He looked at metaphylaxis, so giving antibiotics to groups of pigs when they come into a, a particular unit. And then he worked out where was the, so all of the animals got antibiotics. And then he worked out who, who did they, they benefit? It benefited the lower quartile, the lower 25% in weight. There were no, the benefits in the top 25% and the middle 50% weren't, were negligible. All of the economic benefits and the health benefits were in the lower quartile. Now, if we, now that was just on weight. Now, what did that, these were animals that were probably the pre-disease phenotype, right? Just weight was the measure they used to identify them. They were they were the ones most susceptible to the change and antibiotics helped them. But the top 25% didn't need antibiotics, if that makes sense. But we we couldn't we could we couldn't cate we couldn't categorize those into weight would be a, as an oversimplification. That was just the measure that Jim used. Um, but all the economic benefits, all the ultimate production benefits were in that lower quartile. So if we had better measures to say who is where, then I think that's a simple way, right? Maybe that maybe not every animal needs a, a nutritional, you know, it might be just a subgroup of animals that need your nutritional and would benefit from your nutritional supplements. You could be looking at so many animals that you go, oh, it doesn't benefit those. And therefore it's not very beneficial. You could make an error, but actually it would benefit 
this group, if we could find out who it was, who are the ones who, whatever the nutritional supplement would be, and they're the ones we need to care for. So I think, I think identifying these animals that um, uh, uh, have an unhealthy phenotype, if you were in this pre-disease state would be great, uh, I think. And I don't know what those markers are exactly, but I think they're coming. I think they're coming in some way. Okay. So I think giving the right things to the right animals would need it, but identifying that group of animals that need it would be important. Who, when flu comes in, who's gonna be knocked out, right? The, the people who are fine don't need their zinc, vitamin C. The people who are going to be knocked out need their zinc and vitamin C to prevent them from, you know, that, that common, you know, the Walgreen supplement that you can buy, right? That people use for colds, early colds. Right. Probably not everybody use it. We had some questions come in during the webinar that we weren't uh, able to get to. And I was just going to maybe uh, transition to a few of those real quick, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So we had a gentleman named Paul. He's asking, uh, how do you design a strategy or a calf weaning strategy, vaccination strategy, et cetera, to help them um, the most of a resistant phenotype? To make the most of a resistant phenotype. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, it's funny, Scott. A lot of our vet students, they want us to give them a vaccination protocol that as soon as they go out, uh, they can put it into action or they want a weaning. Give, give me the, uh, the five steps of kind of weaning strategy. Again, and you guys will know when you're out in the field, what you have to do is sort of talk to the particular producer and see what are you trying to achieve? Do you know what I mean? So what are the constraints on your system? Um, and the less constraints you have, the more flexibility you have. So for instance, for, for, for weaning, if you're not pushing your breeding age and pushing your first lactation age, right? if you're not trying to achieve 24 months um but you're open to 26 or 27 months right then you would have a different system you push your calves differently than you would for a 24 month system so some of it depends on the goals and the constraints and i think again the error we make is we try and make every system the same and i don't think you can really do that right we have these the kpis that uh, ken mentioned are great but my farm might not be able to achieve those those things in some way. I might not have the genetics. I might not have the right. I, I, I haven't been able to. I have a poorer quality milk replacer. Therefore, I might need a bit longer for them to transition into their to, to get to their growth. So I, I think um, I would design it around the animals themselves uh, in some way. So I would I would. I would look for markers that the animals are ready to be weaned right in some way. So I would have a system. So, so let's say if I bring four to individualize the system a little bit, Scott, and this is hard, right? In, in our, when we have large numbers and high stocking densities, if I have 20, uh, we work with a big farm that has 90 calves a day, right? So probably on that day, they're not going to sort of wean one, one day and one the other day. They're probably, going to be a whole batch is going to be you know weaned now some are going to be ready and some aren't going to be ready so they're going to have some difficulty following that because they've treated every single calf as uh in the bell curve right they've, they've sort of said okay we're going to treat everything like the mean calf, the, the calf that's in the middle um so i would i i would think about I would talk to that individual and say, what are your constraints? What are you, where's your, where are you pushing? Where do you have to push these animals? Is your milk replacer so expensive? You want an earlier weaning date 
or do you are you using your home milk for instance i'm thinking of dairy calves right or if you're using your own milk then actually that's not such a huge cost issue for you so actually you could i might take a bit longer if i'm producing my own milk it's not extra cost i might i might wean them beyond eight or nine or ten weeks kind of thing but what, what I, I i love i love farms that um researchers as well right scott that they know their they've got enough data from their animals that they know that, and you have to have record systems for this right i know most of my calves are eating um you know 0.9 kilos of grain you know two pounds of grain i know they're all eating them by nine weeks i know 95 percent are eating by nine weeks brilliant then nine weeks is your weaning time no i know they're all eating it by seven and a half weeks great seven and a half weeks is your weaning time so let the animals you have these outcomes one one of which that for weaning that they're eating enough concentrate right that they're eating enough grain uh, to take over the growth curve from the milk so I don't want to lose any weight from that transition from milk to grain. I don't want them to drop off in their, in their weight gain. So we know that's about 0.9 kilos of grain. So I've got to know when they're eating nine kilos of grain, that tells me their rumen's ready to be weaned. So I, I would encourage that, that owner to, um, that client to, to gather data on his, in his current system as to where he is, um, um, what are the animals showing you? When are they ready? And then design a system around that, right, in some way, rather than me trying to fit somebody else's system. Um, and where am I in that kind of normal curve of everything? Um, I think a lot of people don't manage weaning well. So I think that's kind of an important thing. As far as vaccination, um, we also, we tailor make vaccination around the risks of those partic that particular farm. Uh, my, my dad's a good example. My dad, um, think about the dog right you tend to go to the vets and the vets give the dogs the same every every dog gets the same vaccination my dog lives our dog lives on the farm right doesn't meet any of the city dogs so there's some diseases that our dog's never going to be exposed to so i i think sort of some risk evaluation to say here's your risks and let's tailor make what you need for your particular animals with vaccines people have tended to go Oh, it's cheap anyway. Let's just give it to them, right? But, uh, but I, I think knowing what your risks are and having the data that supports that uh, is really important. I think. So I, I don't have this standard weaning protocol or the standard vaccination protocol. I like to sit down with the owners and go, okay, tell me your risks and show me the data about your farm that can help us design one that's specifically for you. I fight with doctors all the time about what our kids should be vaccinated with. I like vaccines. But in the healthcare system, right, they're like, they all need this vaccination. I'm like, what? my kid's not going to be exposed to that. Why does it need that particular vaccine? I'm okay. It's evidence-based. Evidence but again, I'm not, I, I'm a pro-vaxxer. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. But I think we should be sensible. We should handle that uh, carefully as well. You know, so many of the answers, so much of the discussion we've had tonight uh, center around diagnostics or data or, you know, understanding where is that individual uh, right now. One of the questions we've got is kind of related to that. So we've kind of skirted around it just a little bit, but Jay's asking, you know, what are, what are some of the tests that's being developed so that we can uh, better understand when that animal's in the pre-disease pre state? Yeah. And this goes back a little bit to what Ken was talking about. I think, um, I watch the mucosa. And so what, what are the signs? Um, if the mucosa is healthy, the animal is probably going to be healthy. I think we'd say the same about ourselves, wouldn't we? You know, when your gut's working well, you're in you're you're in good shape 
and when our gut's not, you know, just our intestine are just day to day, we're more aware of our intestine than kind of anything else in some way. But also your respiratory system, you know, when you have starting to get a bit of a, a, a burning sensation at the back of your throat or your nose. So some of those signs would be, I think, like runny noses. Um, and we don't look at these things, right? runny eyes. And I, I'm, I'm not talking about I'm talking about pre-infection pre in some way, that your, your mucosa is telling you something, uh, that something is amiss, either the microbiome, the inflammation or the epithelium. So, so nasal discharge, I, I, when I go in, I always sort of, I look around at the animals and I count how many have got runny noses and, how, and what's it look like in some way. So I, I, I would, you know, I, and that's pretty easy, right? I have 50 animals with runny nose. I have two with runny nose. And again, I'm talking, I'm not talking about pus coming out. I'm just talking about serous nasal discharge because that's to us evidence of what's happening in the mucosa. And, and for us, we'd be blowing our nose a lot, right? We'd be sniffing a little bit. We'd have a little bit of a cough. But so what would that like in an animal, right? Maybe there's some early coughing that's going on or some, but just looking at their nasal discharge. The other thing that we, I think, which is interesting, at that, so I'm looking at the two big mucosal sites. That would be my observational metric for respiratory mucosa. And not complete, but at least something you can see. So yeah, the GI tract as well, right? I think for GI tract, we allow a, a huge range of fecal consistency that we probably shouldn't. That would be, what's abnormal? It's a cow, it's got runny, runny, runny feces. Why has it got runny feces like that, you know? So I don't think, so I think we just ignore it all the time. We just see, we just see, it doesn't matter what, we only notice it when it's really squirting out. But I think if we could sort of say, hey, no, this for me, for my cows on this diet, this is what they've got. And if I see any change in that, I know something else is taking place. Uh, again, GI, I'm not saying it's infectious disease, but there's something that's going on pre-disease. So I think the simplest fecal consistency, nasal secretions, ocular secretions would be at least two measures that you, apart from the global ones of growth and things like that too. Now you've got to have records for that. You've got, someone's got to be measuring it and monitoring it and counting that. And so that takes time. But I think if we could, if you could pick up those animals early, you're going to save a lot of money later on, I would suggest. So if you picked them out, Brian, what would you do? That's a good question. That's a good question. That's where you guys, right? That's what I'd want. For me, when I, I take some little zinc and vitamin C supplements, right? That's something I do to look after me. I would go back to what we think of those four stresses. There was kind of a, just a recent study looking at, uh, transported cattle coming right off the transport into a feedlot some animals getting uh, metaphylactic antimicrobials others getting high quality oat hay and uh, water and electrolytes and acclimation so this was kind of tom nofsinger's group acclimation there was no difference in how well they did so i would get them into the parasympathetic world you know this would be simple nursing care in some way um i think keep them eating and maybe there's a nutritional change that they need. I don't know. Um, you know, so again, not a major one, but maybe there's something extra that they would need. Um, I don't know about that. Ken, I'd be open to kind of what that looks like, I think, but I, I would certainly think about now I can observe them better and see which way they're going. Um, I've taken away some of the, those four M's that we talked about that, um, Clay mentioned, you know, what about stocking density? You've taken them out of some of the stresses that come with that it's like going to bed in some way, right? Go like, go, you know, just, just rest, rest a couple of days or something like that. Now, 
there's constraints what people can do with those things you know and it's hard. i know i know at feedlots they're really interesting when they come off the trailer instead of all treating the same which which are the high risk cattle and which are the low risk cattle right we, they've only got two big categories but if we could make five categories of risk and we treat those five subcategories differently uh, again there's labor that goes into that so i understand there's practical constraints so i think at the moment optimizing their phenotype by um, by reducing those stresses would be important. So our last audience question comes from Joanna. She's uh, saying that since an animal's early life often dictates uh, how they're going to turn out as, as adult animals, should those animals that get sick during that early life be discarded from the herd? I mean, it depends a little bit on your system, I think, doesn't it? I, I think if you have the bandwidth, I think if you have the labor, that I think if you get them early, you can recover for us, prognosis, um, meaning the outcome from a disease, is determined by um, the extent and duration of the pathology. So if I have a pneumonia that has, I've lost two thirds of the lung, that's very different animal than animal that's lost one eighth of the lung, right? But the difference would be, did I catch it early in some way? So stopping the progression. I think there are some animals in which this animal is probably not going to recover um, and the cost would outdo the benefit. Uh, but I, th I think for mild and moderate disease, I think they're recoverable. It's, it's amazing what these guys can do, right? Uh, as far as recover. So no, I, I, don't think, I don't think an ill young animal um, has been, is doomed uh, to the end of their productive life. You might have to accept a little bit less production, right? And so you might have to do this, do the mathematics to see if that's acceptable. We, we might have talked about this a little bit, but they're ultrasounding calf lungs now, right? So very common to now ultrasound calf lungs. So animals, calves with respiratory disease that you can't see outwardly, but that an ultrasound can detect like a small abscess. They found out that those animals in first lactation can have 500 kilos less of milk, right? I mean, an incredible amount less of milk in their first lactation. So, and that's a non-detectable lesion. Picking them up early, you can treat them early and then you've broken the, you break that uh, cycle of, of poor production later on. Last call, who needs another round? Well, gentlemen, as we've all just heard, uh, Stephanie has called last call. Some final thoughts uh, from a nutritionist perspective. What's two, one or two take-home messages that you could give a nutritionist? And then one or two messages, uh, take-home messages for producers. Would, what would you have? If a nutritionist, I would, I would say, and maybe this is already taking place. I apologize if in advance, if you, this is already a prime consideration, but how is nutrition impacting um, mucosal health and um, the immune system? So not just the production parameter, but how is it uh, affecting the microbiome? How is it affecting the inflammatory response? And how is it affecting epithelial integrity, right? So I think I, I would think about the nutrition and its local environment. What's it doing in that locally, right? If, you, if we can get, if we can get new, new nutritional um developments innovations that can optimize that i think that would be brilliant and i think you're going to get production effects uh, as a result of that so i'd love to see us working together and working out what that looks like um for the producer i think about two things i think about managing change think about the points in which there's there's a huge amount of change that could be weather change that could be moving animals different stocking densities different social hierarchy how do i manage that well 
I think the evidence is growing that ac the acclimation, so weaning shouldn't just happen by itself. It, maybe there's some training for weaning. You train the animals to be weaned. You train the animals, you start to separate them from their mums before you separate them from their mums. Kind of thing. Let's say I'm talking about beef animals. Some people are, 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 are taking the calves away for a little while and bringing them back, right? Putting them onto trailers, transporting them short distances and bringing them back, right? So you're training them to, so that this change isn't suddenly, so acclimation, right? And we, we do that in sports, right? We don't suddenly go onto the sports field, right? We, we, we have a training period. So thinking of training your animals and managing change well, and that process that every stage is gonna affect the next one. So what you're doing to those babies is gonna affect their future life. So you're programming health and you're programming poor health as well. So there's no life stage which should be neglected as well. Dr. Aldridge, this has been a real treat. Uh, I've enjoyed having you here at the exchange tonight and and you can join us here anytime you want. Uh, <laughs> thank you, it's been great yeah. to chat with you guys. It's been fun and to it, talk about. Yeah, it's been great. And, and Ken, thank you for joining us all the way from Canada. We appreciate it and uh, you'll have to come visit again as well. I'd also like to offer our sincere appreciation for our loyal listeners for stopping by to spend some time with us once again uh, tonight here at The Exchange. If you like what you've heard, please remember to drop us a five-star rating on your way out. Also, hit the subscribe button to get alerts for future podcasts and leave us a glowing review if you're so inclined. Our scientific conversations continue on the Real Science Lecture Series of webinars. Visit balchemanh.com slash science to see upcoming events and past topics. We hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends.